Andy Steiger here. Did you know that in World War II, Canada was known for having some of the best pilots in the world? It's recorded that Churchill approached Canada for pilots, and when they only had a few to offer, he responded by building into the next generation. He said he would prefer a thousand pilots from you later than 10 today. Here at AC, we love the work we do, but we also feel called to training up future leaders to share their hope in Jesus. It's our desire to train up well over a thousand. I pray that one day Canada is known for training up some of the best Christian leaders in the world. One way we're seeking to do that in 2022 is through our Leadership Summit on February 4th to 6th. This event is open to men and women to apply for a special weekend of training and networking at Sasquatch Resort. Please note, this event is subsidized, so don't let finances hold you back. If you're interested or know someone who is, you can find out more on our website. Space is limited, so register today. Lastly, Apologize Canada is currently in the midst of our year-end giving campaign. Our goal is to raise $200,000 by December 31st. And I'm happy to tell you that thus far, we have raised over $105,000. So special thanks to everyone who has partnered with us financially and helped us to make it past halfway. Our team is celebrating the support, and we ask that if you haven't given, you prayerfully consider it. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the AC Podcast. Steve here from Alberta. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about a very controversial bill that just recently uh, became law, basically was passed. So we're going to talk about that. I've invited Andre Schutten. Uh, Director of Law uh, and Public Policy and General Legal Counsel for ARPA. Uh, For those of you that have been following us for some time, he is no stranger to you. Uh, We've invited him to speak on uh, various issues, uh, typically that have to do with legal matters. We've uh, invited him to speak on the Trinity Trinity Western University Law School case. Uh, We've actually spoken together, Andrew and I, on uh, this conversion therapy bill, uh, that the previous version of it anyway. And today we're going to be talking about that new uh, iteration of that same bill uh, that was just recently passed in record time, I might add. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that. And um, But just to uh, keep our expectations straight, my goal for this episode um, is to keep you informed, uh, not necessarily to advocate for any position, particularly. I'll leave that to Andre and certainly Every staff member at Apologetics Canada, we have our opinions, uh, but uh, as far as Apologetics Canada as an organization goes, uh, we don't, as an organization, take a stance. But again, we have our opinions on this. So, Andre, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us yet again. Yeah, it's so good to be uh, back on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, so for those listeners who might be maybe tuning in for the first time or Those listeners that have been listening for a while, but just for whatever reason missed our episodes together, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what ARPA is and does? 
So ARPA Canada, that stands for the Association for Reformed Political Action, ARPA. Um, so reformed being the reformed theological tradition going back to, you know, John Calvin, the Great Reformation, Martin Luther, those guys, John Knox, and, and so on. Uh, so we, we take the, uh, the political theology that comes out of that era and, and we apply that to politics here in Canada today. Um, what does scripture have to say about good civil government? What does that look like? And so our mission is to educate and equip and encourage Christians to be engaged in the political process, uh, to be engaged as citizens in this country that God has placed us in, and then to also bring a biblical perspective to our civil governments. So we do that by lobbying politicians. We do that by making presentations to different parliamentary committees. We do that by intervening in important court cases. Uh, that's how we uh, that's how we bring a biblical perspective uh, on these kinds of issues, these legal and political issues. Great. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Now, uh, we want to jump right into things. So Bill C-4, um, I understand this is not the first time this sort of bill was introduced. In fact, we spoke on, like I said earlier, we spoke on Bill C-6 before, which is the same kind of bill. Could you give us a bit of a rundown on the history of this bill? Absolutely. So back in the uh, early part of 2020, two years ago, um, the justice minister at the time, the liberal justice minister, tabled a bill to ban conversion therapy. At that time, it was called Bill C-8. Uh, and that bill uh, sought to ban conversion therapy. But, but the problem with it from our perspective was that the definition of conversion therapy was too broad. It wasn't focused on uh, torturous or, or coercive uh, practices or treatments that, that have been long discredited in the medical community. Rather, it was, was worded so broadly as to capture uh, spiritual counseling, pastoral counseling around questions of identity, questions of sexual ethics, and so on. So a uh, big concern for the Christian community. Uh, at that time, we we already were advocating for a conversion therapy ban. Uh, in fact, I actually drafted a, a version of a bill to ban conversion therapy, but made sure that the definition was particularly tailored to those coercive and harmful practices that have been long discredited. So Bill C-8 was tabled just before the pandemic hit, and then the pandemic hit, and, and there was uh, quite a long period of time where the bill wasn't debated at all. Uh, and then there was a uh, what's called prorogation in, in Parliament, so it kind of resets Parliament, um, and, and so the, the bill was retabled again last fall um, and renumbered, and then became Bill C-6. That's the one that we talked about. Same bill, same wording, same problem. Uh, and then it was debated all through the House of Commons, in the last parliament, in fact, uh, we were able to get 62 or 63 members of parliament to stand up and vote against the bill, not against the idea of banning conversion therapy in theory, but to, to vote against this particular ban because it banned so much more than just conversion therapy. And that was uh, for us considered a success that we could get um, voices on the record, votes on the record saying, um, no, we can't support this particular bill. And so that bill entered the Senate just before the election, but then the election was called. So that bill also got canceled. It didn't pass into law. And so we've, we now have a new parliament, uh, reconstituted, um, this fall. And, uh, one of the very first bills that was tabled was, was bill C4, which is, uh, the, the bill that just passed in record time. Mm -hmm. So I, I understand that there are multiple kind of concerns about this bill. The primary concern, like you mentioned several times, is that the definition is too broad, that that it captures things that are not 
really conversion therapy properly understood. Now, just to give our uh, listeners a bit of an appreciation for what conversion therapy actually involves, you mentioned there there are harmful practices that have long been discredited. What are some examples of that, the kinds of things that, that you have in mind? Right. I think when, when people think about conversion therapy, they think of electrical shock therapy, for example, that was used um, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. They would take a man, uh, let's say a man who's experiencing same-sex attraction or is a homosexual man, and, and they would electrocute him while showing him homoerotic images, for example. And the hope was to create a negative association in his mind uh, between the homoerotic image and the pain inflicted on him by the electrical uh, shock. And, and that's been long discredited for two reasons. One is uh, it didn't work. And, and uh, the second reason being it was an inhumane way to treat um, or address this, this issue. Um, so, so that's one example. There's been other examples. There's been types of pharmaceutical drugs that have um, really altered the, the personality of people who, who you know, uh, were, were members of the LGBTQ community back, back in, again, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, so the use of pharmaceuticals, um, the use of uh, intense shaming rituals that, that, that really had bizarre aspects to them. Those, again, all of those have been long discredited. Um, but, but what Bill C4 does and, and its previous iterations do is, is it creates it a much, much broader uh, definition of conversion therapy, um, which is problematic, mm-hmm. uh, very problematic. I, I'm not sure if, if it would be worth reading it off, but, but I can try to summarize the definition of conversion therapy from the bill. And what it says is it's, it's a practice treatment or service that is, it's any practice, any treatment or any service that's designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. So it's, it's a one directional thing to change a person's gender identity to cisgender. So cisgender is, means that your uh, sense of your own gender matches or corresponds to your biological sex um, or to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. And then, so those are the first parts of the definition. There's more parts to it where it talks about even simply reducing non-heterosexual sexual behavior uh, or non-cisgender gender identity or um, reducing a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So all of these, um, all, all of these things are, are again, very, very broad. Uh, and I could give you some examples of why this would be particularly problematic from a, a Christian pastoral perspective. Okay. I, I'm thinking about it from a pastoral perspective, because I'm kind of trying to put myself in the shoes of pastors and counselors and whatnot. Um, just from a different angle, too, let's say a, a young person especially comes to me asking, you know, hey, you know, I, I've been engaged in, you know, premarital sex, let's say, and um, I need help. It, it seems to me I, I, under this new, now what is now becoming law, um, I could counsel or help students who are heterosexual but I wouldn't actually be able to help uh, somebody who is engaged in homosexual premarital sex, even though the point is premarital sex, that's the issue that I'm talking about, simply because of the orientation and the behavior of this young person, I won't be able to counsel. To me, it seems almost discriminatory that I can help 
students, let's say, who are heterosexual but not homosexual or something else? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, it makes sense. And I think I think that would be that would be the grounds of a pretty strong constitutional challenge to this bill. Should it come to that? I mean, a, a heterosexual Canadian has the full range of options to seek the kind of help, counseling, support uh, that they want on any question of identity, any question of ethics, any question of uh, sexuality or anthropology. They can seek the kind of help that corresponds to their religious worldview, that corresponds to their philosophical commitments. The whole range of options is available to a heterosexual. The same is no longer true for a member of the LGBTQ community. So if somebody's a member of the LGBTQ community and they do want, in fact, to seek pastoral help or counseling to address unwanted sexual behaviors, um, you know, addictions in, in sexual behavior, for example, comes first and foremost to mind, um, pornography addictions uh, and, and other types of addictions around sexual behavior. They they can no longer have access to the kinds of help that would correspond perhaps to their religious convictions. So if if you're a, a Christian who's attracted to somebody of the same sex, sorry, you don't get the same kind of range of options available to a heterosexual person. Right. Um, right. And so I think that's very, very, very problematic. Uh, like you, you use the words discriminatory, and I would agree with that, that characterization. Now, it, as we're talking about this bill, I've done sort of my own analysis of it a little bit. Because I've seen um, a lot of people who are concerned about pastors and counselors and and what and even parents and what they might go through, um, and so I've seen some people that say, "Well, now pastors and counselors and even parents will be jailed." Um, I thought that was maybe too strong of a statement. <clears throat> I thought, well, they might, um, but it, this law could be applied in such ways. Um, now, my stance on it is, I mean, I, I don't know that pastors and parents will be jailed, but even the fact that the law could be used in that way, I think is there's enough ambiguity there that tells me this there's something wrong with this piece of legislation. Um, does that sound fair to you? Mm -hmm. So uh, it ro received royal assent that happened yesterday. So so it was uh, Monday, November 29th. It's introduced two days later, December 1st. It's passed unanimously through the House six days later um, on Tuesday of this week. Um, it's uh, passed through the Senate. And uh, so it was on Tuesday, the 7th of December. Wednesday, uh, the 8th of December, it received royal assent. So that's the governor general signs it into law. And then it comes into effect. 30 days after that. So January 7th or 8th, it becomes official criminal law in this country. Um, so Merry Christmas, uh, Canada. Merry Christmas, pastors. There's your gift from your parliament. Um, you may no longer apply the gospel and all of its richness, all of its beauty to every aspect of our lived experiences as human beings in Canada. There are certain aspects of our lived experience where you may not apply uh, all of the beauty and all of the goodness and all of the righteousness of, of the gospel, um, it's off balance for you now, uh, at least as far as the civil government would have it, um, and, and until uh, a, success, a successful constitutional challenge. But I mean, even there, Steve, like, I mean, in Apologetics Canada, you talk about things like culture and cultural trends and, mm -hmm. and what, you know, what the kind of pressure that that culture can have on other, other institutions, including the church. Right. But, but what judge 
you know, if, like what kind of a judge? What you need a particularly strong judge who would sit there and say, "I'm going to strike down a law that the entire parliament universally passed without it, it was it was so apparently obvious to them that this was such a necessary law that they universally passed it without any deliberation debate. They 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 passed it. It was." Mm-hmm. You know, all of them, there's not a single dissenting voice. What judge would stand up and say, oh, that must be unconstitutional, or that is unconstitutional. If I was a judge, I'd be thinking twice about that. Now, now, mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe that will actually work in our favor. Maybe the judge will say, look, it's ridiculous that they passed it without any deliberation. What, you know, what's this country coming to? Of course, you should have been debate. it should have been debated, and there should have been a recorded vote on it. And so this shows that this is an unconstitutional bill because you didn't wrestle with it. Uh, may, so who knows? Maybe that'll count as a point against it in a constitutional challenge. I don't really know, but but um, again, like when when leadership, including civic leadership, but we'd say leadership in other realms as well. When when there's this snowball effect, when when you know people are jumping on this bandwagon so quickly and starts rolling so quickly, it can get away on us, and it, and it leaves an impression on the broader culture about where we should be as a culture as it relates to this issue. And, and that, that's going to leave a, a pretty strong imprint as well as it relates to faithful churches across the country. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Um, th- this might be a bit controversial, but in, in your opinion, I mean, there are people who may seek out that sort of therapy, not the conversion therapy, the discredited practices that we're talking about, but pastoral and spiritual counseling or something of that sort. But I, I think, though, it doesn't occur to a lot of people that there may be LGBTQ Canadians who are, say, Christians who do want that sort of thing. Because I, I think the perception is that nobody ever wants this. But then you hear testimonies from people who actually do want it or who have benefited from counseling, spiritual counseling, or whatever it might be. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's actually when you listen to some of the defenders of this bill, it's uh, it's downright condescending. Some of the things that they say, um, for example, uh, uh, one defender of the bill who is himself not a member of the LGBTQ community, he's a heterosexual male from everything that we know, um, you know, said you can't consent to torture and described conversion therapy. Again, this super broad definition of conversion therapy as a form of torture. In other words, um, even if you, uh, um, an adult Canadian with all of your mental faculties about you want and choose and desire to seek counseling, spiritual counseling that corresponds to your religious convictions or your philosophical uh, commitments, uh, and you freely choose it, uh, this this person who who is part of the government of Canada says no, you can't consent to that. You're not capable of consenting to that. You're merely consenting to your your you know quote unquote consenting to to torture. And and so I the government I on behalf of the government am going to ban access to that on your behalf because I know better. It's it's a condescending myopic view of what it means to be. LGBTQ. And, and, and I think that's really problematic. In fact, there are members of the LGBTQ community who have presented at the Justice Committee in, in Parliament on the previous bill who said, said something along the same lines. They said, it's not for you to make those choices for me. You know, how, how dare you do that? How dare you take the views of some 
people who have been outspoken uh, against the Christian community and against others as it relates to uh, so-called conversion therapy. You take their experiences and now you've, you've applied it in a stereotypical way across the entire nation. That's not, that's not right nor fair. Um, and, and I think that that message resonates with, with me as a lawyer and it resonates with many other Canadians. Okay. So, um, on that note, I was just wondering, because I've heard some people say that in countries that are a little bit farther ahead than Canada, let's say Finland or some other countries where this sort of um, conversion therapy ban or something like that has been, in fact, in effect for a while, they're kind of um, taking some, they're, they're backtracking a bit. Is that true? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, National Post actually um, uh, ran ran an article on this very thing that the, the next day, the day after the House of Commons uh, voted unanimously to to approve and, and fast track Bill C four, um, and and they talk about how other progressive democratic countries, the U United Kingdom, for example, some Scandinavian countries, for example, um, that are exactly doing what you said. They're they're backtracking on some of this stuff when they're realizing that if the only um, path forward offered to particularly to young people and young women, like teenage women in, in particular, mm -hmm. who are struggling with questions of gender identity uh, or, or with gender dysphoria. If the only option we provide for them as a society, as a culture and, and in law is, you know, affirmation of their, of their perceived gender identity, even if that means, you know, um, going down the road of, of hormone therapy or uh, going down the road of surgery, that that's going to be a problem, and and we're seeing those problems manifest now over the last decade, where where young young women, biological women, um, in their teenage years, feel that they they are actually men trapped in women's bodies, and then after a year or two years or just a few months of opposite sex hormone therapies, they they you know are wheeled into an operating room. They're they're healthy functioning, uh, breasts are surgically removed from their body. Uh, and then two years, three years later, they have uh, terrible regret. Their anxiety, their depression has not improved, and and they detransition. They they come back to align their sense of self and their sense of identity with their biological sex. Except now that they're a wounded, scarred human being. Um, that's actually what should be the primary concern of the Christian community. The primary concern of the Christian community should not be. Oh, we got to make sure that the the church doesn't have it too hard with the the police, you know, checking over our shoulder or anything like that. It shouldn't be first and foremost mm -hmm. about the mm -hmm. comfort of the church. The first and foremost concern of the church should be the well-being of our neighbor, Christian or not. And and when we look at the the dominant cultural trend right now as it relates to gender identity in particular, my my concern, and I think the concern of so many other. Uh, Christians who are outspoken on the conversion therapy issue mm -hmm. is that there are thousands, thousands of young girls and thousands of young boys, uh, more girls and boys, by the way, the mm -hmm. statistics suggest that it's uh, three to four times as many females are experiencing these kinds of uh, tensions in their life, this kind of anxiety around who they are more than men, uh, young men. But anyway, it's thousands of these young people. And, and this law says you have only one avenue for help. And that avenue for help says transition, transition, transition. Mm. And we're mm. saying, no, 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 no. There's actually a better option. There is a, a preferred option um, that 
you know, I think that what the gospel teaches is that, you know, God created you beautiful, just the way you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a, who you are, you know, your body is an aspect of who you are. It's not everything about who you are, but it's an aspect of who you are. It gives us clues as to who you are. And, and, and we want to be able to help you understand who you are, help you um, come to a point where you can accept the body that you have. And, and we want to be there to walk beside you and love you and encourage you um, uh, to, to, to get through the, this next season, this very difficult season of your life. That's the gospel. And, and that's a good news that, that a Christian community can offer to somebody who's struggling with these deep existential questions. And that path has now been cut off by this bill. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a really good reminder, because I think, especially from the perspective of the church, so many people are concerned about exactly that. What happens to our pastors and what happens to our counselors and those kinds of things. But really, what you want to have in view are the LGBTQ Canadians and especially Christians. I mean, not just Christians, but LGBTQ Canadians in general, right? Their well-being. Um, that is that is so true. And I think part of the um, the reason, I think one of the reasons why so much of, okay, pastors, counselors, what happens to them, that's in, in view, I think, is you and I talked about this last time, that what this bill does is to amend the criminal code of Canada, which is the sort of the harshest law that that governs all things crime related, right? And so we're we're talking about, you know, five up to five years in prison, or just for promoting it, you know, two years in prison. So a lot is at stake here, but I think I really appreciate you calling attention to, okay, let's keep this, keep the main thing, the main thing. The main thing here is the well-being of our LGBTQ neighbors. And I think that's something that not a lot of people, that's not how people see it, right? Often when it comes to the issue of conversion therapy, properly understood, right? There's this kind of dichotomy that it's just one or the other. There is no nuance in the middle of LGBTQ uh, Canadians who might actually want to seek out this kind of help or um, what, whatever they see as help, um, and they, they can make those decisions. And so, um, yeah, I, I think we need to keep that in mind. Now, coming back around to Bill C-4, I've heard that Bill C-4 is actually worse than the previous versions. Uh, why are people saying that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, so I'm I'm hearing some MPs saying the opposite. Some members of Parliament have said, "Well, you know, we passed it because you know it got it got improved." Yeah. Um, yeah. MPs that had voted against it in the previous Parliament now saying that it's been improved improved, and so that's why they supported it this time. That's simply not true. If you look at the bill, uh, you know, the major difference is that previous bill said that consenting adults were exempted. There was an exception within the law that said, look, if you're an adult and you consent to this sort of thing, fine, go ahead. Uh, That's carved out uh, as an exception to the law. That exception is gone now in Bill C-4. So even if you're a 40-year-old lawyer or doctor and and you, you you have full mental capacity, you're you're an autonomous uh, individual, and, and you want to seek out help for an unwanted sexual addiction that is non-heterosexual. Again, even for that person, it's not that that person would be um, banned criminally from seeking help. It's that 
he wouldn't be able to find the help because nobody's allowed to offer it. Nobody's allowed to promote it. And certainly no one, you're not allowed to advertise it and you certainly can't provide it. So um, all of those things have been criminalized. I mean, uh, you know, that's, that's the design of this bill is, is to, it's not so much to say uh, it's a criminal offense to seek out conversion therapy, but we're going to make sure that you can't access it because it's been criminally banned to even provide it, uh, uh, advertise it, or or make a living off of it, um, or to yeah to basically mm-hmm. collect any mm-hmm. sort of uh, compensation for it. So it's, it's most definitely uh, worse, and it wouldn't take much uh, to improve the bill. I mean, just adding the word coercive, for example, at the beginning of the definition that it's conversion therapy is a coercive practice, treatment, or service. Um, that right there would 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 go a very long way to, to fixing this, uh, this definition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or um, focusing it more on uh, the more therapeutic side of things, right? Say it's a, it's a therapeutic practice, treatment, or service. Although even there, I'm a little bit nervous because again, um, Christian counseling proper, like by a registered social worker, a registered uh, psychologist, for example, uh, that the, you know, such a change might still throw them under the bus, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. um, but, but there are, there are definitely changes to this definition that could go a long way in, in, in improving it. It wouldn't take much. Um, so it, it should have been, it should have been opposed for that reason. Yeah. Um, so, so far we've been talking about the content of the bill and how it might get cashed out. But now I want to talk a little bit about what happened with the bill. So one of the reasons this was so surprising to me was that it just kind of blindsided me. I heard one day that it was tabled, that it was introduced. And then just a few days later, I'm hearing that it passed unanimously in the House of Commons. And then now it gets kicked over to the Senate without any amendment. And then just the following couple of days, I'm hearing that this thing passed. So this just really flew through the entire legislative process. So I'm just wondering, what's the sort of the normal process for a bill to pass um, when something like this is introduced? Yeah, so the the criminal code, um, the way it works and the way it's written is that it it only ever lists, well, in rare exceptions, it'll list minimum sentences, but it usually only lists maximum sentences. And so there's always discretion for a judge to uh, to issue a sentence that's less than the maximum. In fact, that almost always happens. Um, a maximum is not is not usually given in, in in a in a case. But but it does send a message, doesn't it? If you're saying, you know, that um, if if you're doing this thing, we want we the parliament want judges to know that we're expecting consideration up to five years in prison. Um, you know, they didn't make it a, a summary conviction offense with like up to six months in prison, for example, as a maximum. No, they listed five years um, as a as a maximum, which is uh, which is pretty pretty severe. Um, so, you know, th- to be clear and to be honest and fair, like I'm, I wouldn't say as a lawyer, I wouldn't say anyone caught you know violating this law will end up in jail for five years. That's not mm-hmm. that's not accurate. It's they could end up in jail for up to five years. Um, but but like I said, this sends a signal, it sends a message. Right? Part of the, if you read the preamble to this bill and part of the criminal code is to denounce, denunciation is, is an important part of criminal law. 
of, of its purpose. And, and the purpose of the criminal law is to denounce certain behaviors and actions as being um, unacceptable in Canada. And, and that's what this, this definition is doing. It's saying this is unacceptable. We're denouncing this behavior in no uncertain terms. It has no place in Canada. And again, if we define the term properly, uh, I'd be okay with that. But because the term is so broad, that's a problem. And, yeah. and another thing that's worth pointing out, Steve, is that um, the criminal law is not only interpreted by judges and crown prosecutors and other types of lawyers uh, and police officers. Um, it's also interpreted by public school teachers and by neighbors and by coworkers and by journalists and uh, all, all of whom don't have legal training. And so they're reading in the newspaper that parliament just unanimously passed, rushed through this ban on conversion therapy. And, and so they start internalizing this and having their own interpretation of this and start thinking, oh, what's my neighbor doing? Or what's my coworker doing? Or what's the parents of this student of mine doing? And then uh, they're the ones who may or may not be instigating investigations or, or complaints or uh, calling the police over this kind of stuff. And so in that, in that sense too, we've got to, We've got, got to be aware that this kind of thing has bigger, broader um, implications. It, it, it affects all of society. It's planted a seed of suspicion as it relates to, uh, again, the application of the gospel to every aspect of our, of, of our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty shocking, especially considering that as I was following Bill C-6, I saw many MPs that actually voted against it along the way. And so then imagine my surprise when I hear this time that it would pass unanimously. And I've, if I were to put my tinfoil hat on, although some, some people would say that you're not putting on a tinfoil hat at all, is that I, I suspect some kind of political foul play because I have heard from certain MPs from the opposition saying, I couldn't vote on this because I was sent as a delegate you know, overseas or, or some of those things. A- am I... Going into conspiracy theory, like what's going on here? In your opinion, what's going on? So normally a bill, you know, it's tabled. Um, it's called first reading. It's read into the House of Commons. Then there's time set aside for what's called second reading and debate. So that means the bill gets read into the House a second time. And then there's a debate. And the whole House can participate in that debate. People can ask questions. They can make short speeches. Um, and and so on, and then there's a vote after that second reading, and that vote, if it's uh, if it fails on the vote, then the bill dies. But if it passes the vote, then the bill goes to committee. So it's a specialized committee of the House of Commons that studies certain types of bills. So there's a justice uh, committee that studies justice issues. There's a health committee that still studies health issues. There's an international trade uh, committee that studies trade issues and so on. Uh, finance committee, budget, and so on. Okay, so then. So it goes to that committee, and that's where uh, people have opportunity to present expert witness, expert testimony. You hear from stakeholders. You hear from people who've been directly affected by a practice in the past, and so on. So I, I've presented to that justice committee on this issue, on in the previous um, uh, government, and and I think they did. Um, Shucks, they did a whole number of sittings. I think they heard from 36 different witnesses. They had expert testimony tabled by all kinds of different organizations. There's over 200 uh, different written submissions that were submitted to the committee. Uh, that committee proposed certain amendments and tweaks to the definition. In that, in that case, they actually made it worse back, back then. But anyway, that happens at the committee stage. And then the committee 
reports back to the House of Commons. That's called reporting stage. So they report back and say, here's a, a tweaked version of the bill. Mm. And then there's a whole debate at that time in the House of Commons. Again, they debate questions, answers, speeches, whatever. And then there's a third reading and a vote. So the third reading gets read, read into the House of, uh, again. Uh, yeah. Sometimes there's deliberation and debate even at that stage. And then there's a final vote. And on that vote, if it passes the vote, it goes into the Senate. And then that whole process goes all over again in the Senate chamber. So, and that's a good thing. It's a really good thing because we shouldn't be passing laws willy-nilly. I mean, if you're going to pass a law, if you're going to change the law, it better be after careful, long, deliberative uh, a time of deliberation. Mm -hmm. You don't want to rush this kind of stuff. And yet in this instance, to my knowledge, this is unprecedented. This has never happened in the history of Canada before, in, in our parliament before, where a bill was introduced at first reading in the House, a criminal law bill again, like this is not just like, you know, a uh, declare next Tuesday, um, you know, the celebration of Dutch culture day or something like that. Like, like this is a substantive change to the criminal code, the most blunt instrument in, in the tool shed of, of the civil government. Um, so it's a substantive change to the criminal law. It's introduced uh, at first reading and the opposition, the opposition, whose job it is to test the law, to ask questions, to investigate, it's the opposition that puts forward a motion and says, let's skip that entire process that I just laid out for you, Steve. That whole process, we're going to skip it, and we're going to send this bill straight into the Senate. So in less than 48 hours, it went from being tabled by the Liberal Justice Minister to being passed into the Senate without any deliberation, any debate, any study, any investigation, any witnesses or experts or stakeholders uh, having a say, goes straight into the Senate. And then the Senate has an opportunity. And, and that's, again, we, it's been referred to as that chamber of sober second thought, right? There's supposed to be the check and balance on the power of the uh, the populist power of the House of Commons. And that chamber does the exact same thing. Uh, five days later, they pick up the bill. It's read one time into the House of, uh, into the Senate. And then it's the opposition leader in the Senate. So a conservative senator, again, who stands up and says, we've got other things to deal with. I move that we pass this thing through second reading, committee stage, third reading, deliberation, debate, and just pass it straight into law. And Hearing no nays, that's exactly what happened. It got passed through there. Again, no study, no deliberation, no debate, no witnesses, no experts, no stakeholders at all. It, in, uh, I could be wrong about this, but I have never, ever heard of such a thing happening in the history of Canadian Parliament. It's, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. yeah, I actually wrote to my MP in my writing here um, just to, you know, to get some answers because uh, this MP actually was one who voted against Bill C-6 back in June. So I asked him, so give me some answers here. What just happened? So then this MP said, kind of like along the lines of what you were saying, hey, you know, the liberal side, they're playing this game. We're not going to go along with it anymore. And those kinds of things. And I thought to myself, because even as I'm reading the email, I'm thinking of all these people that I know uh, in in the religious communities here, like the the pastors and the counselors, all these people, I'm I'm thinking, okay, so in in order to sort of win at this political game, you're throwing all of these people who are your constituents, you're throwing them under the bus. The th I mean, we're talking five years, two to five years in of prison time. Um, so I I just found that really surprising and. The, the email for me personally seemed almost a little callous. I, I know that that 
particular MP is not that kind of a person. So it almost, something didn't seem congruent to me. Um, so just the fact that, you know, back in June, there were so many MPs that voted against it. And this time around, it was passed unanimously. I think that tells us something. Um, on that note, now that this bill has passed, when will it come into effect? It, it's re- it is difficult to say, but so I'd say uh, a couple of things. One is I would say that this is the failure of leadership, first of all, mm-hmm. on the, on the opposition side. I mean, you know, let's make no mistake about it. Mister Mister Trudeau on the Liberal side is playing political games with this bill. Um, I think uh, they're more interested in using the bill to drive a wedge within the Conservative caucus more than anything else. And um, I, I I seriously question the sincerity. Of, of this bill. There's, an, there's a reason why um, earlier this year, Justice Minister Lametti said that the bill that we have in front of us today was unconstitutional six months ago. He said it was unconstitutional because the constitution would require an exception for consenting adults. And now that's gone. I mean, the only reason he, he, he upped the ante is to really turn up the heat uh, within the uh, within the conservative uh, caucus. And, and yet, you know, uh, Mr. O'Toole, uh, to his discredit, played the game and and um and the leadership uh, of that of that caucus uh determined that this was the best course of action to move forward was simply tell tell the caucus to keep their mouth shut support this unanimous motion and and allow it to to proceed i can't tell you exactly what happened something must have happened that day um like a phenomenal amount of pressure must have been exerted on some of the mps because i i know them personally i know uh, I know that they are, you know, men and uh, women of character that have advocated on very, very tough social uh, issues, and and they've held a line on on some of those issues. So I I can't imagine what it was that was uh, held over their head, what kind of threats uh, were made, but uh, I'm guessing it they would have been very severe threats, um, mm-hmm. and 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 that's the only reason why they they didn't speak up, or or you know maybe maybe they just weren't weren't around at all. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what, yeah, if you want to call it conspiracy or not. I mean, that much we we know for anyone who has been following what's been going on, that that much we know. Um, yeah. But then I think as well, like like these kinds of decisions are often made as a caucus, as a team. And, and so I'd suspect as well that within that caucus, many who did stand up to vote last time around, simply gave up they they lost courage or they or they got lazy or tired i'm not sure what i gotta be careful i can't i can't say for sure what their motivation was but but that's that's the kind of thing i'm hearing and and that's really unfortunate like these there are certain fights that are worth fighting the talking points on this one were not that difficult you know the justice minister himself from the government side from the other side of the house had said this bill was unconstitutional just six months ago there there's one talking point for you and it was given to you by the people on the other side um, and, and, uh, so, so I think it was, it was easy enough to defend if they were willing to do it. And, and sadly they didn't rise to the challenge. Yeah. We will have to wrap this up soon ish year. We're coming to the end of our time, but there was one more topic that I really wanted, uh, you to address for our listeners. And it's the issue of speaking of constitutionality, the issue of the rights of, or the freedom of conscience now, often I find that people talk about the freedom of religion, but actually, if you read in the charter, those two are actually put together, freedom of conscience and religion. And some people might even argue that the freedom of conscience is actually even more fundamental 
um, that the freedom of religion is is a maybe even a subcategory of freedom of conscience. So could you tell us a little bit about that the freedom of conscience? What is its significance? And how does that apply to this issue that we're talking about today with respect to Bill C-4? You know, freedom of conscience is a very important freedom. It actually has not been talked about a lot by our courts, very rarely, actually. Uh, Almost all of the cases since the Charter came out that deals with Section 2A of the Charter, freedom of conscience and religion, almost all of them exclusively focus on religion and not on conscience. And yet the two are distinct uh, ideas uh, one being much more subjective and personal uh, than than the other one is, um, and yet being related, right? Uh, your religion and your religious views and your religious culture uh, influence and shape your conscience. Um, mm-hmm. So from a Christian perspective, we'd say an individual Christian's conscience needs to be respected, but that conscience can be shaped and must be shaped by the Christian religion. Right. So, uh, yeah, as it relates to this, I mean, I think uh, there's a, a few different conscience claims that that raise their head. Uh, there's a conscience claim, I suppose, of the person seeking help, pastoral help. Let's say their conscience afflicts them and says that the way that they are living or um, the things that they're struggling with uh, need to be addressed uh, and need to be addressed in a way that accords with their conscientious beliefs uh, shaped by their religious convictions. Um, so there's a there's a conscience aspect there. And uh, and, and so what, what I'd say is we, we should do what we can to allow people to explore that kind of uh, thing. And, and what we shouldn't be doing is saying, okay, yeah, you can explore that kind of thing, but you can only explore it with these types of people over here who are going to affirm a particular religious uh, view about identity and ethics and so on. Um, I don't think it's the place of the civil government to be picking and choosing in, in that respect. Um so, so that's one aspect, but I think the other aspect and the one that gets would be triggered, I think, in a constitutional challenge here to this kind of a bill is that uh, of a pastoral counselor. Like if, if you're a Christian counselor doing Christian counseling, whether as a social worker, a Christian social worker, let's say, or as a, uh, a pastor or, or an elder in a church, then, then you are conscience bound to bring the the full liberation and and beauty of the gospel to bear in a situation it's not for you to say you know i'd love to help you but i can't because you know you're part of the lgbtq community and i don't want to be on the wrong side of this new criminal law that's been been passed or it's not it's not right your conscience bound to say to give good true uh advice or pastoral counsel um it's you can't say, oh, do whatever you want. You know, if, if you really want my advice, I, I would lean this way, but it's totally up to you. No, you like you wouldn't say that to somebody who's struggling with, let's say, anorexia uh, or struggling with self-harm, uh, questions of self-harm, like cutting or something. You wouldn't say like, no, you know, scripture actually teaches that, um, you know, you should really, you know, or my, my personal opinion on, on scripture is that you know, maybe you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, cut yourself, but, you know, mm-hmm. totally up to you. Like you get to pick, you get to choose. Uh, and I'm just here to, mm-hmm. to, to, to affirm you and love you. It's like, no, 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 what love looks like in that situation is like, we need to address this and we need to address it now. Um, and, and this is, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is how we can do this together. And let me help you. I'm willing to help you. I'm going to pray with you and so on. It's not coercive. You're free to come. You're free to go. Uh, you're free to accept the counsel or not. But what I, as a counselor or I, as a pastor, am not free to do is to 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 
totally put it, all of the um, work and decision-making on the other person. It's for me to also say, uh, you came to me for professional advice. You came to me for professional uh, opinions or pastoral support. This is what I'm telling you is what's going to be best for you. Now, now it's up to them to, to take it or leave it, but it's not, you know, but the, what the government's saying here is like, no, 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 we're going to impose on your conscience and say, this is what you can say. And this is what you can't say. And if you do say it, then we're going to criminalize it. Uh, that That's a problem. Yeah. And so then that would also dovetail into, would you say freedom of expression as well? Because this is part of your expression as a, let's say a Christian minister or counselor or as a Christian in general, maybe parents or teachers or something like that. Does that sound right? Yeah. So I, I would definitely see, yeah, freedom of religion, conscience being being a, a grounds to chart, uh, to challenge this freedom of expression. Like you just mentioned, I agree with your, your description. Um, freedom of uh, actually section seven of the charter, the right to life, liberty, security of the person, I think is definitely engaged. I mean, like stop and think about this one for a moment. Um, uh, six years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down a total prohibition on assisted suicide under the grounds of security of the person and the right to life, saying that there are some people who who are not vulnerable, who want to end their own life uh, and, and want to do so with the help of a physician, but the law prohibits it. Uh, that means the law is overbroad. But what do we have here? We have the government saying all you know, LGBTQ people are universally vulnerable. And so we're going to pass this law with no exceptions, not even for consenting adults, to, to prohibit them from accessing counseling that, that they want. Um, to me, and, and so the court struck down a, that kind of a law as it related to as suicide six years ago. To me, they could do the same with this law. I say, come on, you're not even going to carve out an exception for, for adults who are not vulnerable, who consent to this sort of thing and are seeking it out. Um, I think it's definitely constitutionally vulnerable there. And then we already talked mm -hmm. about earlier in the show, we talked about the equality rights, the discrimination mm -hmm. uh, charge for members of the LGBTQ community. Why is it that the government's going to police their options when it comes to counseling and spiritual support, but they're not going to police that for uh, a heterosexual Canadian? That that on its face is discriminatory, mm -hmm. contrary to that would be mm -hmm. section 15 of the charter. Yeah. So there's lots okay. of arguments okay. against this one. Okay, so which is which makes it all the more surprising again that this bill passed so quickly, unanimously, and those kinds of things. Okay, okay, so um, let's wrap this up as we come to a landing, so to speak. Now that this bill has passed and it's it has received royal assent, even it's going to come into effect starting this coming year in 2022 in Canada. Uh, what are some things that you would suggest Christians to do or anybody really? But uh... yeah, so um, a, a few things. So the first thing, the first thing is, of course, pray, right? Um, mm. there, the year 2022 is going to be challenging that that year and next year and, and the years that follow is going to be challenging. They're going to be a challenging year for the church. Um, so so pray for the church and her witness uh, that she could have courage and compassion, I think, in the face of cultural storms. Um, I'd say pray for um, our fellow Canadians who are struggling, who genuinely do um, have deep questions about who they are, uh, how they should live, uh, questions about identity and ethics and uh, belonging and so on, and that the church would be equipped to, to offer help in those areas. Uh, pray for our civil government, that they would stop playing political games 
uh, you know, and political games with both the LGBTQ community and political games with the with the church in Canada. Um, we're not pawns in a game. Like these are real people um, with real questions and real lives to live. And and the politicians, with all due respect, are are uh, uh, using all of these thousands and thousands of people across this country. They're using them for tricks and games, and it's a holy inappropriate to be doing so say it's morally wrong to be doing so so we need to pray for them so besides prayer then i'd say the other thing is that we need to for your christian audience anyway i would say we need to recapture um the beauty and the goodness of god's design for humanity we need to be able to teach our our children and our young adults and and our older adults uh just what is the gospel message as it relates to uh, sexuality and identity. It, it really is a good news thing. It's not, it's not just thou shalt not do X or Y. And we're like, oh, okay, grudgingly. Okay. I guess, well, we've got to do it this way. Cause God said so. I mean, God did say so, but, but there's more to it. It's, it's a, it's a really big, beautiful, wonderful, uh, thing that, that God created us in his image that, that we reflect his image and that he created us for a beautiful and a wonderful purpose that he's given us uh, so much in that. And that each one of us, doesn't matter what you're, you know, if you're LGBTQ or, or not, uh, that each one of us has, has fallen, each one of us is broken, but that God so loves us that he sends his own son to, to die for us. And so that our identity, our first identity is not, you know, gay or straight. Uh, our first identity is not even sinner. Our first identity is redeemed, loved, chosen people of God. And, and, and if we can embrace that aspect of the gospel and really understand it and internalize it uh, and teach it to our, our kids and to our, uh, the people that we come into contact with, I think it can be uh, liberating and exhilarating. Um, so I'd say that would be the second thing. And then the third thing I think would be to, um, to not abandon the public square that, that the, the Christian has um, a role to play. I think they're actually called, Christians are called to be engaged in the public square. Like we cannot isolate. We cannot just look internally and shrink down or hibernate or whatever. It's, it's now as much as ever before that Christians need to bring the good news of the gospel to bear also on public policy, also on mm -hmm. the laws of the land as they're developed, mm -hmm. that, that we, like, we have to do it winsome, winsomely. We have to do it compassionately and we have to do it um, in a way that that resonates with the culture that we've been placed in at this time and in this place, but 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 we have to do it nonetheless. And uh, even though it's difficult, we we can do it. And that's why the organization I work for exists is to help Christians do that very thing. So um, that that's I guess what I'd end with, Steve. Yeah. Okay. Thank you again so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. Uh, for those listeners who are interested. Guys, go and check out arpacanada.ca to learn more about what ARPA Canada does and the kinds of things that Andre is, is engaged in. Um, I think it'll be well worth your time. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The Apologetics Canada podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll see you next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care of yourself. <laughs>